0: Dr. Gwynne Dyer is a Canadian historian, graduated from uh, King's College in London. He is a scholar. He has taught war studies at the Royal Military Academy in the United Kingdom. He is also a syndicated columnist for the last 20 years, and he is the author of War, was the basis for a television series aired in both PBS and BBC, and his most recent book is Climate Wars, The Fight for Survival as the World Overheats, which is being held by people like James Lovelock, who we had recently on this program, and Nassau's chief scientist, Dennis Bushnell, and others, as a major, uh, as a major contribution to our understanding of the climate. Nice to have you with us today.
1: Nice to be with you.
0: One word before we begin our conversations with uh, Gwynne Dyer, I want to share with listeners that what we will be discussing is not something that uh, Dr. Dyer has pulled out of thin air. He has interviewed and consulted with numerous climate change scientists, political experts, President Obama's chief scientific advisor and energy secretary a former head of the CIA, heads of NASA, climate change advisors to the German government, which is one of the more green-thinking nations today, many green activists, such as Vandana Shiva, who we're filming in a couple weeks. Uh, He uses the data he has accumulated over the years, writing on foreign policy to generate the possible global warming scenarios that I'm going to share with you. Now, before I go to my question, I just want to briefly list the 10 possible scenarios, and I underline possible, for our future. And this is from Climate Wars by Dr. Queen Dyer. One, Russia and NATO go head-to-head in the early 2020s over oil drilling rights on the seabed of the ice-free Arctic Ocean. Two, a million Bangladeshis die in a great cyclone, of 2022. Half a million drown in another cyclone the following year, and then Cyclone Anwar hits 2025, killing at least 2 million. 3. The U.S. begins construction in 2025 of a 9 foot high razor wire fen- big fence along the Mexican border, complete with landmines and remotely controlled machine guns to stop climate refugees fleeing endless drought. 4. By the mid-1930s, agriculture is almost at an end in the Central Valley of California and the high plains west of the Mississippi. The U.S. ceases to be a major food exporter. 5. China implodes in 2036 as tens of millions starve in droughts. Russia fights to hold the Siberian border closed as waves of Chinese refugees head north. 6. The Chesapeake Bay disaster of 2042 floods downtown Washington and Baltimore many feet deep and ruins huge amounts of farmland. 7. The European Union collapses in the face of millions of starving refugees fleeing from North Africa and the Middle East. 8. The final destruction of New Orleans. In 2051, by now 15 million Americans are displaced persons who have lost their homes. Nine, India and Pakistan fight a six-day nuclear war over the remaining water in the parched river Indus River, leaving a half a billion dead. And ten, the average temperature in inland America is 12 degrees uh, Fahrenheit higher than in 1990. And God's Coalition now both the traditional U.S. parties in the 2054 midterm congressional elections. Now, of course, these are hypotheses. Now to the question and now to our conversation. Question. Now, before we embark on exploring some of the predictable scenarios you outlined about the geopolitical responses to global warming the world may face during the next 50 years, I would appreciate you addressing a separate question for me, please. I find, sure. it, I find it a challenge that the major world governments, U.S., the European Union, the BRIC nations, Brazil, Russia, India, and China are simply ignoring and not taking the political and domestic ramifications of global warming seriously. I am sure at this moment the U.S. intelligence agencies, the military think tanks are mapping the consequences of a 2 to 4 degrees Celsius increase. And what that will mean for national security and food production and trade and energy and domestic crisis. So I would like to hear from you anything you have to offer with respect to foreign policy and military intelligence strategies by the U.S. since President Obama took office. We know the Bush administration did, uh, you know that relates to planning ahead of worst-case climate scenarios. For example, why the continuing wars in the Middle East, why we know the war on terrorism is more smoke and mirrors than anything else, and I want you to address that, Our increasing tensions with China, I don't see the purpose of that, and of Russia, stupid missiles in Poland, and supporting color revolution nations like Georgia. What's the meaning behind that? Do any of these and other White House and intelligence movements indicate that you... To you that these moves are in any way related to global warming issues it's just a hypothesis I'm putting forward it may have no value at all would you address these please?
1: Sure well well first of all um, of course the U.S. intelligence agencies and indeed the U.S. Armed Forces are doing all sorts of planning very quietly in the back room so to speak for the kinds of contingencies and crises and threats that they think the U.S. will face um, as the, the climate changes, the warming heats up and the refugees start to move because there's not enough food, because it's not raining or it's too hot there and you can't grow enough. That actually is what got me started down this road, road was realizing about three years ago that the Pentagon, even under Mr. Bush, was actually already doing contingency planning, scenario planning on these issues. You know, so um, of course they're paying attention to it now. I mean, now we have to come to uh, how much does this connect with current U.S. policies towards Russia in the Middle East and so on. Um, I think to some extent um, there is there are connections, but I wouldn't actually go overboard on that. I mean, U.S. policy towards China, for example, has been profoundly ambivalent or ambiguous from the start. On the one hand, we think we can make deals with them. We think that they're, you know, as they grow, they will sort of take their proper place in the top table of the the nations of the world, and all this sort of can be be managed. And on the other hand, uh, maybe it can't be managed, so we better make some allies elsewhere in Asia. And there was a big push under Mr. Bush to make India America's ally in Asia. So you give China a sort of two-front problem. That was true i, I don 't think the oil weirdly enough is a huge issue here, because frankly you don 't need to invade you don 't need to invade countries to get oil out of them. You know you send them a check <laughs> they 're in the business of selling oil, even Iraq sold oil to the United States a month before the invasion so um, I, I think that what 's going on in in the Middle East is actually. I mean, there's always this obsession about oil, although I think it's greatly overdone because of what I just said. Um, But an awful lot of it really is driven by this perception, again, hugely overblown, that the United States faces some kind of mortal threat from terrorism and that invading Muslim countries is a good way of dealing with it. Nonsense, but very widely believed nonsense. So that, you know, I mean, how much... are, are the intelligence agencies really that stupid that they would, you know, sort of fall for all this and go into all these wars because they anticipate climate change 20 years down the road um, and we better occupy these countries now because then, you know, there'll be some scramble for the last bit of oil in a world that's running away with heating? I don't think so. I, the, 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 the intelligence agencies actually aren't the tail that wags the dog.
0: All right. I appreciate that answer. Thank you. Now, I'm going to take it a, a little aside for a moment. You may may have an opinion here. If not, we'll go on to another issue. But we have been concerned, my audience, myself, and many of the geologists I have spoken with, that the United States government British Petroleum should have, from day one, brought in some of the world's leading experts to have been able to have seen what was going on in the ocean floor, help with independent mapping so that they could have been a part of the strategy for containment or uh... for at least knowing what the likely outcome would be and yet here we had a case where if you were down there taking photographs you could have been arrested and put in jail with a serious fine and only certain journalists were allowed anywhere near there, and they were under constant surveillance or control. They couldn't just go out there. Scientists who wanted to go out and help, who are experts in the area, couldn't. And at the time, they were telling me, these are people who have long and and, and special uh, understandings of the problem, said there's something they're not telling us and for a reason. And they speculated that there's probably multiple fractures with other leakage and they know that, um, that if they cannot cap this, that other leakage could go on for long periods of time. And there could also be leakage of methane, and there could be methane bubbles there. And my thought was, why don't they just get us the best minds we can in the world, tell us exactly what the problem is, and the best and worst case scenario, and, and assume that people throughout the United States and elsewhere are mature enough to accept the truth. Do you see any validity in this?
1: Yeah, I think I think on this one you're probably on the money. I mean, it, it never made much sense to me that you, you know, leave all this in the hands of BP and then you know impose what amounts to a news, news blackout on the media, except for official spokespersons. Um, I think that there was a huge amount of management of, of, of access to the news, a huge amount of, uh, of attempts to keep it out of keep the issue from expanding from this blowout to what's going on in the Gulf of Mexico on the sea bottom. Um, I think you're absolutely right about that. Um, you know, who, who's in on the conspiracy in a way? Probably practically everybody. I mean, you got a whole industry here that really, I mean, the oil industry, uh, and it's the U.S. oil industry we're talking about here because that's who's drilling in the Gulf. Um, is facing f- financial ruin if we respond to the evidence by saying, okay, you've got to stop drilling there. And so, therefore, we mustn't be shown the evidence.
0: All right, on a separate issue, I'll come back to uh, some, of the, uh, some of the climate issues. But because you do have uh, a substantial knowledge about the nature of war, the consequences of war, Could you give us your understanding of why no one has been held accountable for intentionally cherry-picking the intelligence and lying about it to get us into Iraq, and why the American public, or for that matter, publics elsewhere in the world, have not come to understand that these wars are not winnable by any conventional measure, and we're not willing to acknowledge that, except we're afraid, like in Vietnam, of losing face, we're acknowledging we will have blown from one to three trillion dollars in this, depending upon Stiglitz's accuracy, Joseph Stiglitz's accuracy in this, and have wasted hundreds of billions in out, out fraud, and will not have created the kind of democratic regimes that we expected or wanted, and yet the media has been extremely reluctant to challenge uh, the conservative media hasn't challenged Bush at all in his mishandling of Iraq, and Obama has not been challenged by uh, Keith Olberman or the left or the Nation in any in any meaningful way. They've had little little snips, but no real investigative reports. And, and in a reality check, you know, what's, what's the likely outcome of us being there? Could you give us your insight of the likely outcome of being in Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, the likely outcome in Iran, and what you see in your crystal ball?
1: <laughs> My crystal ball, yeah, sure.
0: Okay, look, first of all,
1: Every time I come to the United States, and I come a lot, I mean, I live in London, and I'm you know, sort of British and Canadian, and so on, so I'm an outsider. And what really strikes me, especially because I'm a journalist, when I come here is how little news there is. I mean, real news. <laughs> I mean, it's not true that the rest of the world has not been informed about the lies that dragged us into Iraq and then and, and even before that into Afghanistan. I mean, right now in Britain, there's a huge parliamentary inquiry going on. And they're going to nail Tony Blair to the wall on this one because they know he was lying. But it's being done there. Here, it's not being done at all. And, uh, you know, you ask me why, but you're the American. I guess I have to ask you back, why are the American media so craven? And that's the word for it, is craven. Most of the journalists I know, American journalists, know that they've been fed a diet of lies for the last eight or nine years. Um, You know, some, some, some lies and some misstatements, false statements, that were genuinely meant by the idiots who said them, but, you know, they've been living in a fantasy world, and they're unwilling or unable, for reasons I don't understand, to pull the plug on this and say, look, you know, that was a lie. This was a bad move. We made a mistake. Let's cut our losses and get out. And nothing bad will happen, to come to the, the question you actually ended with. You know, we're, the U.S. forces are, will be out of Iraq, all of them, by about a year from now and very bad things may happen in iraq in iraq after that that's not a problem that's been solved that's a problem that's been put on ice for a while while the u.s gets out whatever the bad things are that happen in iraq after that it's extremely like unlikely to have very serious impact on the united states the country's half a world away um, you know wh- what is it we think they're going to do to us they're going to have to sell their oil and even if some weird regime refused to sell Iraq's oil, that it gets sold to other people, and then we get our oil from the other suppliers. You know, it's not going to change matters. As for Afghanistan, I mean, that goes much deeper. Um, the United States invaded Afghanistan because Osama bin Laden wanted it to invade Afghanistan. That was the point of 9-11. You know, you do something so horrible, so atrocious, that it will force the U.S. government to put troops into a Muslim country, which of course is going to benefit Osama bin Laden in all sorts of ways. It will radicalize Muslims, it will drive them into his arms. He imagined that it would provide stick the United States with a situation rather like the one the Russians had in the 80s in Afghanistan, a long, horrible guerrilla war and defeat at the end of it, which may yet be the case in this instance U.S. and Afghanistan. So you know the U.S. was suckered into invading Afghanistan. Bin Laden probably never told the Taliban, the rulers of Afghanistan, that he was going to do 9-11. Why would he? I mean he's a Arab. He's a guest. He's going to bring death and destruction down on his hosts. Is he going to tell the Taliban first? I doubt it very much. You know, none of this. I I had a conversation with Tom Ridge, your your former Homeland uh, Security Mm -hmm. chief, about two or three years ago, and I said what I just said to you, to him, on a sort of public platform. And he came to me afterwards and he said, nobody ever said that to me.
0: You're right. No one's ever said that in the United States before. What you're saying to this audience, we've never heard anyone discuss this (laughs) ever.
1: I mean, you know, think about it, Osama bin Laden is a a wicked person, but being wicked doesn't make you stupid. And, you know, what was his motive? Did he just do this because he liked loud noises and he hated Americans? Come on. You know, he's not trying to change our way of life. He's trying to come to power in the Arab world, in the Muslim world. So could the Americans come and help him, please, invade Afghanistan? That should give him a good start. Um, and, you know, I mean, look at, think about Osama bin Laden's own life history. What's his history. He spent the 80s fighting the Russians in Afghanistan, a Western army, Russians are Western, in Afghanistan. And after 10 years of heroic effort, they drove the Russians out and they became heroes. Well, this is a guy trying to relieve his past victories, you know, Re- relive his past victories. It's, it, it, this is how guerrilla wars and terrorism work. You, you always try to lure the other side, which is much more powerful, a government, a whole country, into doing stupid things that will, that will you know sort of serve your cause rather than their own, like U.S. invades Afghanistan. For why? I mean, if you, if you are a terrorist... And you have some strategy that involves attacking the United States. You don't need a country to do it. In fact, none of the terrorists who did 9-11 were living in an Arab or a Muslim country at the time. They were here in the United States or they were in Germany or somewhere else. But, you know, there was a few guys in Afghanistan that said, yeah, good idea, go for it. But they didn't do the planning and the hard work. Um, what you need to be a terrorist is a safe house. And uh, access to reasonably secure communications and an airline ticket, not a country. And the occupying countries doesn't defeat terrorists. In fact, it tends to create them. Sorry, I'm getting carried away here. But no, I mean,
0: no. You're giving us your you're giving us your rationale for your statement, which gives us a better way of understanding uh, your position. Do you believe that the United States intelligence agencies or Mossad had any forewarning of the attacks?
1: I actually doubt it. I'm, I'm, I'm a great believer in incompetence.
0: Okay, um, All right. no, there... I just want to know that. My next question is a little more uh, germane to many people in this audience, because I have a large uh, Orthodox Jewish audience and uh, and have have for 30-some years. I want peace in Israel for the Israelis and the Palestinians. Uh, The approaches they have taken are not going to allow that to happen. I'm concerned by the ineptitude and the, the, the type of approach that should be taken that is not. And then yesterday, a new tape was revealed of Netanyahu, who, on tape... Uh, he wasn't probably aware he was being taped talked about how easily manipulated the Americans are how he can move them in the direction he wants and it doesn't really matter what they think they will control the dialogue and they'll control everything uh, that they want when dealing with the Palestinians Uh, and that's when Eros Sharom was uh, uh, really running the show now he's running the show what do you see happening in Israel what do you see happening in Iran what do you see happening in Pakistan
1: Okay, one at a time. The the real debate in Israel now, and this is among Jewish Israelis, is really about whether there is still any possibility of a two-state solution, you know, like Palestinian state next to an Israeli state, which is really what we've been trying to make happen for the last 15 years. That's the peace process. Or is it too late? And if it is too late, here is why, which is that, um the number of Palestinians is coming to exceed the number of Jews in the land which some Israelis think should be theirs, all the land between the Jordan River and the sea. And all the settlements that are going into the West Bank are being created by people who do think that should be Israeli land. But if you get the land, you get the people on it. And we're coming to the point, probably within the next couple of years, where there will, for the first time since 1948, when all the refugees were driven out, the Arab refugees, first time since 1948, there will be an Arabic-speaking majority in what used to be Palestine, you know, the sort of land between the Jordan and the sea. So, from a Palestinian point of view, what's starting to happen and they have been dealing with some pretty intransigent Israeli governments, particularly Netanyahu and Sharon. um... is, you know, the argument has shifted from, can we accept a two, uh, you know, the two-state solution? Can we make it work? Will there be a viable Palestinian state? How do we get the Israelis to pull the settlements off the land? Where should we should be getting from for, the, for that state. It's moving on to, are we sure we want a two-state? solution. Because if the Israelis go on occupying all of this territory and we are the majority on this territory, all we really have to do is demand the vote. You know? Never mind, you're right. It's all one territory. There's no need for a separate Palestinian state. Israelis, we agree with you entirely. Can we have the vote, please? And and this is this is a terrifying concept for the whole zionist enterprise because the one thing that would actually shake american support for israel is a civil rights movement among the palestinians demanding the vote you know i mean and 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 this is what obsesses israelis on the left now but it's also beginning to worry israelis on the right which it didn't until Oh, the penny dropped two or three years ago, really. Um, And so now you've got nobody in Israel really knows what to do next. The ones who want to hang on to the territory don't know what to do with the Palestinians on it, and they can see that if you keep the territory and the Palestinians, ten years from now you'll be in an indefensible position. They're the majority. All they want is the vote.
0: Now let's go to Iran, especially since Iran is not one uh, one voice uh, of uh, in unity. You have the Iranians living in the country who are poor, generally illiterate, who support the present. You have more educated and younger, uh, uh, excuse me, Iranians uh, from the universities. Could you talk about what happens? What happens if and when the United States and Israel decide to go into Iran? Uh, the
1: United States, another war the United States can't win. Um, you know, there's lots of wars you can't win simply because your enemy is too, dif- too diffuse or too uh, too resistant or too many, and Iran is most of those things. If you attack Iran, what Iran uh, Iran's options are very large. You can bomb Iran, um, you can smash up all of their nuclear facilities, whether they are intended to build weapons or not. You can shoot, you know, destroy their air force in the morning. But you can't invade Iran because the U.S. doesn't have enough troops. This is a country of 75, 80 million people, and it's mostly mountains, and it's not a poor backward country like Afghanistan at all. It's a semi-modern country. So invading Iran is really one of the last things in the world the Pentagon wants to do. Um, Beyond that, um, what would Iran do back? And the answer is... Iran has endless options here, because, you know, Iran is the whole north side of the Persian Gulf, right? Or Arabian Gulf, if you wanted to call it what the Arabs like to call it. But it's the same gulf, it's the same piece of water. And on the south side is Iraq, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Dubai, Bahrain, all the places to produce the oil. And Iran can close the gulf. it's got ship-killing missiles, it's got about 1,000 miles of coastline, Um, you know, just mount them on the back of trucks, drive them down to the seaside and take out a tanker. They're as broad as a bar, and you can hardly miss. And, you know, sink five or ten tankers, and no other tankers will venture into the Gulf because the insurers will not cover them. So, you know, don't attack Iran. This is a no win I think the United States understands that.
0: But Israel, uh, Israel doesn't seem to accept that what the United States would be an army. Israelis.: interest. The
1: Israelis are, are paranoid about these Iranian nuclear weapons. I, I think that Iran would like to be about six months away from operational nuclear weapons. It would like to have its own sources of enriched uranium. It hasn't enriched it yet. To the level where you could build nuclear weapons with it, but if it if it decided to break out of the the controls of the International Atomic Energy Agency and go for broke it could get there in six months, um, because they really feel very vulnerable. After all, it's Israel who's got all the nuclear weapons at the moment. Um, but I think that there is a real real misunderstanding in Israel. It's based on the fact that they don't really take, rather like Americans don't take bin Laden seriously as an intelligent opponent. Um, They don't understand that Iranians do strategy, too. And from an Iranian point of view, attacking Israel with nuclear weapons, if it had one or two, would be a very complicated and expensive way of committing suicide. Because Israel's got hundreds of things, and it would simply eliminate Iran. Why would Iraq, Iran, therefore, want one or two, or want to be able to get one or two if something really bad happened and it started to get very frightened, like, you know, some really terrifying Israeli government came to power? I'm not saying it's going to happen, but it, you know, from their perspective, it might. Um, what do they want one or two for? And the answer is to keep the Israelis honest. Don't be a target that can be eliminated without any retaliation be a target, you know, all you need is one nuclear weapon that you can deliver on Israel. And Israel will not attack you. We saw that with the United States and North Korea. Hmm. You know, attacked Iran, Iraq didn't attack North Korea. Why was that? Nuclear weapons. So, you know, the the Iranians are looking for one or two nuclear weapons or the capability to get there quickly, not necessarily to make them right now, because the political situation would have to change. There'd probably be time if they needed to. But they are looking for the ability to deter Israel. Israel's had complete dominance over the area for, what, 40-odd years now since they built nuclear weapons. Everybody else in the area knows you must not threaten the Israelis in any fundamental way or they'll pull out their nukes. They started pulling them out in 73, um, for example. So, you know, from an Iranian point of view, um, one or two nuclear weapons would keep the Israelis honest. Now, I think one of the reasons they don't just go ahead and do it and simply want to be capable of doing it in a crisis is that they actually do have a public religious promise out there that nuclear weapons will not be acquired. I mean, the the leader himself, who is, after all, in somewhat the same situation as the Pope when he speaks on religious matters, you do assume he means it, has said nuclear weapons are un-Islamic. Okay, in an absolute crisis of survival, we'll sort of forget that. But it's not something you forget easily overnight. So I, I don't really think at this point that Iran wants nuclear weapons. It wants to be close enough that if things got really terrifying, it could get one or two as deterrents to keep the Israelis from doing a surprise attack that would just, you know, wipe them out. I don't think the Israelis are planning to do that either, but people deal in these contingencies all the time. What's the worst case? What do we do then?
0: Well, we're out of time. I also, just a final point on this. I. I know a lot of Iranians. I know very educated Iranians. There are a lot of educated and more progressive Iranians. They do not believe that their leaders and the business community, who are frequently also within the the, uh, the Guard and the mullahs would allow all that they've accumulated, all they've built to be completely annihilated. They're not nihilist, and they haven't, we haven't taken that into consideration. These are not Jim Joneses. Uh, let us talk again. I would like to invite you back to talk about food shortages, mass migration, and global warming. If uh, you have an opportunity, please uh, to fit us in for an hour. We'd love to continue our conversation with you.
1: I'd be delighted to do that. You let me know when I'll be back in London at the weekend and
0: we, there then, the rest of the summer. We,
1: but it's only a long distance call.
0: That and we do it all the time. We were on in Paris yesterday. Thank you very much for being good. with us today, my guest, Dr. Gwen Dyer, D W Y E R.